Um, so uh, we're going to be in the book of Malachi tonight. And um, the goal for tonight is to, is to read through Malachi and, and kind of sum up our time in the post-exile books. Uh, but also to prepare our hearts for the fast, which begins uh, after dinner on Wednesday and runs through to uh, Saturday dinner, I guess. Or uh, we'll have a church service and break the fast together. Um, stay tuned. I'll send out an email on details for any kind of combined meetings that we're going to have. Uh, we will likely be all together next uh, next Saturday night for. Uh, and I, I think maybe all the churches might be getting together. Uh, but then also for um, just corporate prayer meetings that we'll have, morning and evening, evening prayer. Those are always a, a, a nice time. Um, I really appreciate just being with other people in the body during the fast. Particularly just hanging out in prayer. Uh, it's always good to hear what's on people's hearts. So that's the goal for tonight, is to kind of to, to, uh, get to the heart of what Malachi, the messenger, that's what his name means, uh, the messenger of the Lord, uh, had to say to God's people. And it's the last book of the Old Testament, both in the order of the books, but also chronologically. It's the, it's the last word um, that we have, at least in the Protestant canon, uh, before the words of Matthew. Or I guess maybe the words of Mark, whichever one was the earliest gospel. Um, It's likely addressed to the general population of Jerusalem living about, and nobody really knows for sure ever on these dates and stuff, but uh, about 100 years after that initial wave of exiles back into Jerusalem. You remember in the beginning of Ezra, the proclamation of Cyrus happens and a wave comes back. And it's not until maybe a generation later that Ezra rises up and uh, really establishes the word in Israel. And contemporary to Ezra was Nehemiah, who rose up. And we didn't really study Nehemiah much, um, which reminds me, I want to encourage you to to go back and listen to the four teachings that they did at LCF uh, on this section of Scripture, uh, because they really brought out four of the key themes, and it was kind of a different way than than we went through. So you would be greatly enriched by uh, going through those teachings. I think uh, Billy is teaching on Nehemiah and the walls of of Jerusalem tonight. Uh, Anyway, it's about 100 years after people started trickling back. Okay, so it's not in that heat of revival or reconstruction. You know, the the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, they really stirred the people up to do the work. And Nehemiah really led the charge. This is a period of time where... The, the same issues that were confronted by Haggai, Zechariah, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, the same issues are still lingering, okay? The issues that, that appeared right off the bat, right? We need to reestablish the word. We need to walk in holiness. We need to rid ourselves of idolatry and foreign influence if we're really going to come back to this place and do it right. So they've returned to like a, a shell of what Israel was formerly, and not only that, like, but their hearts, I think Malachi, one of the messages that he said, the hearts are still kind of a shell of what they should be, okay? It's, it's not really the fullness of, of, what, uh, of what the prophets had been uh, promising. So the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, um, the sacrifices have been reestablished, all that stuff. But we don't get the sense from Malachi that the people of God are radically and gloriously living out <laughs> the reality that the, the, the prophets, uh, the, the, the messianic age that the prophets foretold, right? You're going to go into exile, but then, oh man, then that one fine day, the Lord's going to return to Zion. And so they were like, all right, this is it. We're going back. But okay, it's kind of the same. Actually, kind of a little bit worse. What's going on? You know, we got all hyped up. We took the long journey and we did all this work. And now what? So to put it another way, the best times for Jerusalem are still way back when. Okay. The prophets had said 
the right Haggai said the latter house, the latter house is going to be more glorious than the former house, and that that was still true. That but it's still it's still ahead. And so there's in the, it's it's in this waiting time. All right, we've come back. That's great, but as we look around, we don't really see the glory that I think we should be seeing. So there's a group of people living in the land who've become, you know, if you're to kind of read into Malachi, they've become apathetic. Right? They're not radical. They're not zealous for God. They're not really responding to Ezra and Nehemiah's calls for zeal and purity among these people are they're going through the motions, if you can believe that. Right? But just I mean, just off the bat, think about that. Right? These people were in a bad way. I mean, granted, it was their own doing, but they were in a really bad way. God did a, an amazing thing in bringing them back into the land. But somehow, even on the other side of a big move of God, they find a way to be apathetic, to be insincere, to just go through the motions. Right? This is not just an Israelite problem. This is a human problem. Okay? We get drawn away. We get lulled into apathy and sin, even cynicism and rebellion. So this is where Malachi comes to proclaim the word of God. It's the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, which is by the messenger. Okay? And he, he uses that word a couple of times, the messenger, in this book. And it's a, a play on his name. Um. So let's pray. Uh, let's pray again and ask God that he would bring the oracle of the word of the Lord to ECF by the book of Malachi. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us, that you would really, um, by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts uh, to hear your proclamation to us on this night, Lord, heading into this week of seeking your face, fasting. Uh, Lord, capture us in the ways that that we need to be captured. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this written record of remembrance, as Nehemiah calls it, that we can look at and read and uh, and know you better because of it. Open this word to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the chosen people are back. And it's not going well. They've fallen into the old ways, the old bad habits of idolatry and worldliness. And so Malachi presents uh, these six disputes. It's organized as six disputes. And this is actually one of the more, um, I think, lively books in terms of rhetoric. You know, it's, it's sort of this dialogue, this back and forth. There's almost a satirical element to it. If you were to look at it as a, as a piece of literature, which I often do. Um, there's this almost banter, you know, and God, what he's doing is, um, or what Malachi is doing, you know, what God's inspiring Malachi to do is really draw out. It's almost a, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but there's a, there's a, there's a form of argument. I believe it's called reductio ad absurdum where you isolate kind of the, the crux of someone's argument to like kind of blow it up and see how absurd it is, right? So the way that these disputes go is God will bring his charge against, um, or he'll, he'll pronounce some sort of truth, and then he'll give the immediate rebuttal. It's kind of the hypothetical or rhetorical rebuttal to that pronouncement of truth. All right, so we have like right here, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Right, he does that over and over. God says this, but you say, well, what do you mean about that? Well, let me clarify for you. Okay, and what God, the the truth that God's bringing, he's levying some pretty serious charges, like you're robbing me. And the people go, wait a minute, I'm not robbing you. And God says, no. Let me show you how you're robbing me. Okay, so he's bringing out what they're actually doing, the implications of their action. He's making those explicit and revealing to them 
No, you actually are. <laughs> you don't see it as robbing. But if we're to really examine this and put it under the, put it under the spotlight, that's what it is. Okay? So he's shining the light of truth on their apathy, on their insincerity, on their worldliness to help them see that they're not just kind of slogging through life. They're actually really offending God and, and hurting his feelings, <laughs> you could even say. They're breaking the covenant. They are being faithless. They are basically an unfaithful wife or a rebellious teenager. Okay, so the idea here is that God is showing them the way in which their actions reveal the state of their heart. So he'll say, here's the state of your heart. And they go, wait a minute, that's not the state of our heart. And he goes, let me bring your actions and explain to you how those actions indicate to me where your heart is. This is, I would say, a deeply and intimately relational way of disputing. Okay? Those of you who have been married for a while know that there can be times when your spouse will say, well, I really think that you just don't care about me. What do you mean I don't care about you? Well, by the way that you do this. That shows me that you don't really care about me. Yeah, but I, I do care about you. I mean, I've, I've married you and I've lived with you for all these years. And Yeah, but... Those are just words, right? And Malachi even says, the Lord says, you, you, you've wearied me with your words. Here's what your actions say. Your words say this, but your actions say this. And let me, let me tell you what I hear your actions say. How does that sound to you? Right? You're robbing me. I don't know. I'm not robbing you. Okay? So this is, a, this is a very personal, I would say even like a marital way of disputing. Well, I know what you say, but I live with you, and I see how you live, and I see that the way that you live is not lining up with what you say. With what you say. All right? And I think that's, that's perfectly in line with what the theme of the book is, which is covenant. The covenant relationship between God and his people. Okay? He even points out the nature of a relationship between a father and their children. He points out in the middle of the book, the, uh, the nature of a marriage covenant. All of those come into play because God is trying to reveal to them how they have been unfaithful to a covenant that he himself has been totally faithful to. Okay? And it's a deeply personal and an intimate bond in their relationship. And he's saying, you're not, you're not doing what this covenant demands that you do. And it doesn't just mean you're breaking some abstract law. It means that you are hurting me. I'm tied up in this covenant. And in so much as you break the covenant, you're breaking my heart. All right? So it's a, it's a, it's a very personal book. This is a very personal disputes. These are uncomfortable back and forths. <laughs> right? It's like watching a couple try and hash out an issue. <laughs> it really is. Well, I see you. I see all the things that you do. And then I hear all the things that you say, and it just doesn't line up. And, and it makes me feel like you're not invested as much as I am in this relationship. You're not committed and given. So he says, I have loved you. And that's really where it all begins. I have loved you. God has taken the initiative. He's entered into relationship. And he's saying, the way that you live, he says, but you say, how have you loved us? And I don't know if people were going around necessarily and saying, how have you loved us, God? Maybe, they're, maybe they were. But also I think it's, uh, it was implied in the way that they were living. I'm not so sure God's for us. You know, we're back here, but man, this is not, this is not how it should be. I'm not sure God's really for us. All right? And God says... Um, no, I've, I've loved you. Just believe me. All right? That's not the issue. Okay? That's really an immovable truth. All right? Something else is the issue. It, it, it's not with me. Okay? Because he gives him a little history lesson. And he says, 
Yeah, you say, how have you loved us? What proof have you given us? We look around and we just see kind of this pitiful state. Where's the glorious Jerusalem? Well, <laughs> it's that way because of you, not because of me. And we'll, get, we'll flesh that out a little bit. But he says, I chose Jacob. And there, he didn't do anything. And actually, Paul brings this in uh, to the discussion in Romans 9 to prove to them that what God chooses to do, he does. And he says, so I chose Jacob all the way back then. You are my people because I made a decision to choose Jacob, to elect Jacob to be, my, uh, to, to be the, the, the father of my people, this nation that I was going to supposedly bless the world through. I chose Jacob. And so this reveals that what the people see as evidence of love is not what God provides as evidence of love. You hear that? What the people see as evidence of love is not what God has actually provided as evidence of love. And this shows that the people don't really don't understand what love means. Because the, the hidden logic there is that if God actually loved us, things would be different. That it's because that God doesn't love us that things are this way. And God says, no, you know, I, I've, I've perfectly loved you. And the way, and he spends the rest of the book spelling out, the way things are the way they are is not because I've failed in upholding my covenant, but it's actually because you have not been faithful to me. All right? But anyway, he says, I chose you over Esau. I didn't have to do that. And not only did I choose you, but here we are to this day. You are the people of Israel. You're the chosen people. I've been faithful to you. I've been here the whole time. And so he says, so that's kind of the first dispute. How I have loved you. The second one begins in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? You guys know the honor that a father deserves. You know the honor that a master deserves. And so why, why, can't, why can't you apply <laughs> that reasoning, it just in a, in a basic understanding, to your relationship with me? And he particularly says, he st- here talks to the priests. And he says, You've d- you despise my name. They go, wait, wait a minute, we don't despise your name. We're priests of, of your name. We're priests of Yahweh. How, how can you say that we despise your name? He says, well, let me tell you. You offer polluted food upon my altar. We go, wait a minute. No, no, no. We go by the, we go by the code. He goes, do you really? And what the priests were doing is basically allowing people to bring into the temple uh, just kind of trash animals. Blind, lame. You know, they weren't bringing offerings of their best. And so the people were doing that, but God's really concerned that the priests haven't spoken up and said anything. So he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So he's saying, by allowing, these, by allowing people to come and bring ins- insufficient offerings, polluted, uh, you're saying, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's fine to to pollute the Lord's table. Their allowance was approval of it, and uh, God God takes issue with that. And he says, (laughs) go try and present something like that to the governor and see what he says. You're talking about your God, your creator. Is that the kind of offering you want to present to me? He said, and so you're surprised that, um, go show it to the governor, see how he reacts, and now come back and tell me and complain that I haven't shown you favor. This is basic, basic stuff, guys. 
And it's not a problem with me. You clearly don't really want to honor me. By the way, well, you must not love us. No. Would anyone, would anyone receive a blind animal and go, thank you so much. You know, I'm going to bestow favor upon you because of this. Show it to the governor. And now, see what God says. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? And then God says, oh, that there were one among you priests. Shut it all down. This charade, this parade of crippled animals into the, why, just shut it down. I don't, he's like, you've, you've missed the point completely. What are, what are we doing here? Uh, he's going, ah. like, is, this, is this the proper way to respond to God's faithfulness and to express devotion to him and desire to please him? Oh, that there are one among you who just shut the doors, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. I don't like this. You clearly don't like it, and I don't like it either. You know, again, and to use the marriage analogy, to bring in a bunch of, like, crappy-looking roses and just throw them on the table. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks? I mean, do you want me to say thank you for that? What are we doing here? In verse 11, he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Listen, guys. We're still headed there. This thing that you long for, and you're kind of, oh, I don't know. No, my name will be great among the nations, whether you're with me or not. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And you're not doing me any favors. You profane it, right? But your activities actually take my name and make it lower, <laughs> devalue it. Oh, yeah, there's the Yahweh worshipers. You know they sacrifice blind sheep to their God, and apparently he, they think he's okay with it? What kind, of, what kind of God is that? You profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, that its food may be despised, but, but you say, what a weariness this is. Right? God sees where they're coming from. Oh, I gotta, is it? It's Sunday again. Gosh. Get the... I saw a goat out there walking to the fence, and he must be... Just let's come on. Let's go. Let's get this over with. It's deer season. Let's see. Maybe we can pick up some roadkill on the way and just call it a day. You bring what has been taken by violence <laughs> or is lame or is sick. And you bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Uh, JP pointed out this week. It's, it reminds you of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Yeah, we're all in. And then holding back something from yourself. There's, there's a cheat. I mean, he's got a perfectly good sheep. Man, that, that, that guy is awesome. And to go to church, he brings the lame one and the sick one. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So he's like, I'm not debating on the finer points of, he's like, you've missed it at a fundamental level. You know how to honor a dad. You know how to honor a master. You're not even affording me basic propriety. <laughs> and he says, I'm the king of all the earth. All the nations are going to worship me. Sick animals. Doesn't make any sense. And he, he really emphasizes that the, that the priests here are really to blame. And now, O oh priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, right? Because the priests were just involved in, all right, minimum possible adherence. 
That's really what it was. Did you do the sacrifice? Yeah, I would have got it. Did you do it according to the book? I don't know. He said that, was, he said that that was their best one, and so, okay, fine, whatever. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. This is God just saying, I said, if you turn to me with your whole heart, I will pour blessing down upon you. And here you are going, oh, I don't know about God. I don't know if he even loves us. Just give him this, just give him this crippled animal. By definition, you've brought a curse upon yourself. According to my own, according to the law that you are, that you are charading around pretending to, to adhere. Adhere to. I will rebuke your offering. Spread dung on your faces. I mean, this is, it gets kind of graphic here. Basically, stick your nose in the, in the mess that you bring. And you shall be taken away with it. You shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. He said, I have a priesthood. And here's what this priesthood does. My covenant with, one, with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He knew who he was. He knew who I am. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. No, 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 no. Don't bring that in here. God deserves much better than that. This is what true priesthood does. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and my people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. Yeah, it's fine. Just go ahead and bring it. Right? This permissiveness and this laxity in the priesthood has brought a curse upon the people. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. He mentions a covenant again. I had a covenant. I had a covenanted priesthood. And here's how it operates. They honor me. And they teach other people to honor me. They teach my people to make a difference between holy and profane. As it says in Leviticus, you will teach my people that there is a difference. There is a separation between unclean and clean. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in in instruction. They They don't stand for the word. They just let... They live and let live. Then the third disputation, he really gets into family. He says, we all have one father. And one God has created us. Why then are we faithless to one another? Okay, so we've moved from God's love for us, God's love for his people, the way they respond to that love in worship, and now we're moving into the way that they treat one another. Okay, do you see the flow? God loves us. He initiated it. The first response should be to give him our best and to give him excellence. And also, coming out of that, we should uh, treat others the way that he treats us. And we should, have re- we should conduct our relationships in a way that tries to imitate the way that he loves us. He says, but listen, I've been faithful to you, but you've been faithless. You're faithless to each other. And actually, that's an offense against me. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering. Oh, why isn't he listening to us? He never answers my prayer. And you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. You're faithless to your wives. And you come and appeal to the faithfulness of God. Aren't you, are you going to be faithful to me? Right? This gets at some of the basic teachings that Jesus gives. If you don't forgive your brother, how can your Father in heaven forgive you? Right? If, you, if you are holding someone else in contempt, 
You have no right to complain that God is holding you in contempt. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And here, over these next few verses, it, the, the Hebrew is actually pretty obscure. So if you, if you consult different translations, it, it will vary pretty widely, and there will be footnotes all over the place. It's because the Hebrew is kind of obscure. There's a lot of, like, implied words. There's a lot of interpretive work that has to go, to go on to even get, like, a, a complete sentence. Uh, but the gist of it is this. God desires for covenant relationships to reflect his covenant relationship, right? And when those covenants are broken, uh, God despises that. He hates that. And that brings a curse into the earth. So this, you know, the ESV says, uh, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's pretty clear. Um, this next verse can be, can be translated a number, a number of ways. And in, in most translations, it actually says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. Uh, and I think even a footnote, it says, um, the Lord, the God of Israel in the ESV, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. It's, there's some just mixing of the, the pronouns are ambiguous. That's why it's, it's confusing. Either way, God does not like it. <laughs> When divorce happens, when the breaking of covenant happens, when his people are faithless to one another. All right, this is all over the New Testament. Um, Jesus and Paul's teaching on marriage and divorce is very clear. You know, Moses gave you permission because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. Right? Divorce does not belong in the people of God. Because it shows that people don't understand God. It gets all the way back to the beginning. They don't understand that the nature of God's love for us. It's faithful. It's long-suffering. It does, not, it does not divorce. It does not put away. Even to great harm, it does not put away. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? <laughs> At every point, they're defensive. At every point, they're, they're incredulous. Me? No, not me. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Um, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the fourth dis- disputation is that God's not being faithful to enact justice. It seems like he's pretty pleased with the evil people because they... Uh, they have better lives than us. All right, that's what it means here by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He said, looks like he's happy to bless them. They're, they had a good crop this year. And they're heathens. What's going on over there? I thought we were the chosen people. Where's the God of justice? This isn't right. And then God says, let me tell you about justice and judgment. I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to prepare my way before me. And he will suddenly come to the temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift... Witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, uh, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming to judge the wicked. Oh, that's all the things that you guys are doing. Oh, so he says in verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, because I don't change, because I've loved you this whole time, because I've been faithful to you this whole time. O children of Jacob, uh, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, 
are not consumed. Where's the God of justice? He's withholding his judgment so you don't become evaporated by his holiness. You see what he's saying here? I can judge, and I will. And when I come to judge, it's going to be people who do the things that you're doing. So don't ask for judgment. Don't ask for justice. Because you're implicating yourselves in your cry for justice. And I think our culture needs to hear this. Our culture does not want justice. Our culture wants justice for them and them only. Whoever them happens to be. All right. But that's not even justice. That's vengeance. That's what, that's what vengeance is. I don't like what they're doing. I want to punish them for it. It offends me. I'm going to punish them. Anyway, that's a different, different topic. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. I don't think you want to cry out for justice. Return to me, and I will return to you. We heard that in Zechariah. Don't return to this cycle of idolatry and blaming God. And, but that's what you've returned to. But you say, how shall we return? And then he moves on. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. They're cheating on their tithes. You know, they weren't, they weren't generously providing. And this was a real practical thing in those days. You know, providing material for the work of the temple. Right? And included food for the priesthood, food for the hungry, the needy. I mean, there were all sorts of practical reasons why they needed the tithes, right? But also the tithe was an expression of that none of this stuff belongs to me. You know, it, it belongs to God, right? So it, 10% of stuff doesn't belong to God. It all belongs to God. And a tenth is like, is sort of a, uh, a down payment. Yep, God, it, it's, it's sort of the escrow thing. Yes, we, we give just 10% off the top because uh, it's all God's anyway. And we want to show him that we don't hang on and grasp what he, what he gives us. Now, this is important here. It's not about tithing, okay? It's about realizing that God is the giver of all things. And it's really about lordship more than it is about tithing, per se, Okay? You're robbing me. He said, put, actually, go ahead and test me on this. You guys just go, go full tenth and see what happens. You're complaining about you're under a curse. You're, there's no blessing. You know, there's, no, there's no prosperity. There's no fruitfulness. Well, this is the land flowing of milk and honey. I haven't seen milk and honey for years. Just test me. Why don't you just faithfully tithe? And you just see, just watch what happens. Put me to the test if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. All right. We tend to, along with faithless Israel, when the need happens, the generosity shrinks. When the need grows, the generosity shrinks. And God says, what kind of... What kind of life is that? You clearly don't understand who I am. And the more you grasp and protect, actually, the less your need will be met. But the more you open yourself up and give, the more blessing will flow into your life. And again, I don't want to sound like a, a, a prosperity gospel preacher. I mean, the, the hundredfold, if you give a dollar, God's going to give you a hundred. Call now with your credit card. It's a, it's a much deeper principle than money. Right? It's our whole selves. 
as we pour ourselves out for other people, in love, as a reflection of the way that God loves us, as we do that, God goes, you know what? That's what the world needs. That's actually the blessing that I want to pour out on the world. And so there, blessing is happening. Someone understands how to take what I give and use it in the way that it was intended. I'm going to give them more. Right? This is stewardship. God loves to pour gas on fires. Okay? If you are on fire, God loves that. If you are generous, well, then God knows who he can give stuff to to get it to other people. God wants to bless everyone. And as soon as he finds someone that their life is just other-centered, he's going to give them lots of stuff. Not, because, not for them, but because of all the people that are going to get stuff through their life. You see how this works? You start giving, then all the nations will call you blessed. Will you walk around needy and complaining and grasping and shutting other people out? Oh, when are my needs going to be met? No nation is going to be blessed by a life like that. No person is going to be blessed by a life like that. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And this really gets personal. This is the sixth dispute. How have we spoken against you? God says, you know, I've really been hurt by the way that you've spoken to me. How have we spoken again? And he says, and again, I don't know if this was people actually saying this thing out loud or if he's telling them, I've heard this go on in your hearts. It's probably both. You have said it is vain to serve God. What use, what use is this? What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in more, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, we, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Man, he's just forgiving those evildoers all over the place. They deserve to die. Here, we are the chosen people, and we're suffering. What's it it all worth? You see all the fundamental disconnects that they have? They're just focused on themselves. They have no idea how to relate to God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So God's looking down. He sees all these people. And then there's this group of people that God listens into on their conversations. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Then the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Ah, there's my people. That's my people. They shall be mine, says the Lord. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. They get me. They get me. They know that I'm their father. They know their place. They know who they are. They do honor me. And they are remaining faithful. And they have not arrogantly said, what? what's the use of all this? But they've been faithful. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And he says again, I'm I'm coming. Despite what you see, despite the kind of the, the pitiful state of things, my plan is advancing. And it's it's closer today than it's ever been. And when this thing happens. All the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. They're going to burn up. But for the righteous, it's going to be like the sun came out from behind the clouds. For the evildoers, it, I mean, I guess, they're, I guess they're kind of like vampires. You know, the sun appears, ah, no! 
But for the righteous, thank goodness, the night is over. We've been waiting for this. We've been watching for the morning. And here it is. And the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. There's my faithful people. I've heard you. I've seen you. You've honored me. I am here to heal you and to shine on you. You'll go out leaping like calves from the stall and you will tread down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. So he's saying, listen, guys, I'm, I'm biding time. I'm waiting for the, the right time to actually act. And listen, I'm waiting for you to return to me. I'm waiting for you to get your hearts right because I'm going to come and those who are set against God, those who don't fear God, it's going to be really bad for them. But those who do fear me, those who are patiently waiting for me, they are going to just rejoice when I come. Remember, and this is kind of the final word. Remember Moses and all the law. Remember the law. And I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. So we have the law and the prophets. He kind of gives them. Remember the law. And I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is what I'm after. Guys, the covenant has been broken. But it's not because of the fathers. The the hearts of the children have been turned away from the heart of the father. I am coming and I'm turning the hearts of the children back so that this thing can work the way that it should. Right, and obviously this points ahead so explicitly to Jesus who came as a son, right? When God took on flesh, it was as a son to show us what? How to do this thing, how to have a heart toward the Father. And it's no surprise that because of who Jesus was, God was able to actually bless the world through him. He was true Israel. He was the true servant. He was what God was always looking for. If he hadn't come, a decree of utter destruction would have gone out on God's people. But he was able to turn the hearts of the fathers by becoming a son, by sending forth his son. And he was able to show that to us. So, the big thoughts in Malachi. Number one, the love of God for his people. The love of God for his people. And these are thoughts that we can take into the fast and and ask God to examine us. The love of God for his people, it all hinges on understanding this. It's self-sacrificial. It's relational commitment at any cost. It's relational commitment to another's good at any cost. And this is the love that God has shown his people. It's what they did not understand from Eve onward. And it's what the cross definitively shows for us. Right? Because now, and I've said this a lot, but now nobody can say, how do you love us? Without saying it to the bleeding body of Jesus on the cross. Right? He was made flesh. And now anyone who says, how do you, do you really love us? Has to look at a man bleeding on a cross for our sins. And God can't do anything else. Right? I mean, God showed it. (laughs) We were the ones that that demanded that he continue to prove his love. And he says, all right, I'm going to give it all. And I don't want to hear one more time about, I'm not sure if God's for me. But it all hinges from that. That's the fundamental, that's the foundational revelation. God loves his people. He's faithful to his people. He is for his people. And the next thing is right response to that love. You could call it worship. 
You could call, that's what sacrifices represented. It was for worship. That's why David was like, man, we got to get this worship thing right. We got to sing while we're doing this. Because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That was David's like favorite song to sing. That was someone who understood who God was and who was responding rightly to it and was pouring out extravagant sacrifices to him, not to earn anything, but in response to something that could never be earned. Whoa, you love me? Oh my goodness. I don't have a, I don't have, my best is not enough, but I'm going to give you my best because it's all I have. And so the love of God gets the worship right. The love of God gets relationship right. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? Be imitators. Be like him because you know what he's like firsthand. You are a beloved child. And so you know. You've received it. You've, you've drunk deep of that love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's the best offering you can give to God in response to his love for you? Pour out your life for someone else. And God goes, oh, I am pleased with that. I pour out favor on you. You are pouring yourself out. You understand. (laughs) You've received my love. You've acknowledged it as love. And I know because you're laying down your life for others in the way that I've laid. This is simple stuff, but it's profound. It's it's where we have to stay. We We don't grow out of this truth. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walking in love. And so that leads to the third thing. Right response to the love is is worship. Reflection and imitation of his love in our covenant relationships. We conduct our relationships, our end of the covenants that we've made with each other. Marriage for sure fathers and sons, but I think also all believers in, in, in a way are covenanted with each other, particularly in local bodies of believers. We've covenanted with each other to love one another and to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. So we reflect and we imitate his love in our covenant relationships, which means that we are faithful, that we uphold our commitments, We swear to our own hurt, right? As the psalm says, who will ascend a hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and pure heart, who has not poured out his soul to vanity, who doesn't take a bribe, who swears to his own hurt. That's not just like a a vague moral platitude. That's the very essence of who God is. His promises are good. And so we are faithful in our marriages, we're faithful to our families. We do not break our covenants. So you see how this flows from God's love to us to a right response, true worship, that then enters into our relationships and we conduct our relationships as a sacrifice to God. And then beyond that, reflection and imitation of his love in our participation in society, right? Where society is unjust, how do we approach that? Our participation in society and the way that we contribute to the work of building up the church. This is the tithes. Well, how would one who's convinced of God's unfathomable love, how would they tithe? How would they participate in social functions? How would they be a citizen? Of a country. See how it works? And he he leads them through all of those different areas. From his love all the way through. 
And he says, this is the big point. He says, the problems you're stuck on are your own doing. The hindrances between you and being the glorious people of God, which apparently you want. The problem is, you really don't know what it means to be the glorious people of God. You want the results, but you don't want the character of God. You don't want to imitate him. You want to be some chosen thing, but you didn't, you didn't earn that at all. So he's pointing out where the problems that these people are hung up on are their own doing. All right? Here's what, I don't think God loves me. Leads to, or the, the answer is, God's response is, you either don't understand love, you know, you're calling love something that it's not, or you're completely ignorant of history. God says, wait a minute, uh, I just, I chose Jacob and I stuck with him. I could have left him, I could have started with someone, but because I chose him, I stuck with that. And probably both, probably, probably don't understand love and ignorant of history. I don't think God loves me. That you're just choosing to reject all evidence to the contrary. Heaps of evidence to the contrary. We see a problem that people, people don't give God the honor he deserves. We're mad that people look, look down on the church and mock the church. They look down on the worship of, of Jesus. Because they see a bunch of dead rituals being performed in a very uninspired fashion. <laughs> Why wouldn't they look down on the worship of the true God? Half the people doing it aren't even convinced of it themselves. And then we get upset. People don't worship God like they should. Well, because priests are totally okay with it. And they don't challenge anyone to uphold the law and to give God what he really deserves. We see that I don't think God's pouring out his blessing on his people like he said he would. Would you keep dumping money into a business that was hemorrhaging cash due to embezzlement and mismanagement? Would you just keep sending investment that way? No. I'm going to stop funding this till they get their act together. Otherwise, it's just a total waste. God's not concerned with enforcing justice. The, the wicked get off and, and, and the righteous are, are oppressed. And again, this is good. Because if he did, we'd all be dead. Right? And then they say, you know, keeping the law, it's just not really worth it. It just doesn't, it, there's no profit in doing this. And the problem is, you've never actually done it. So how would you know? Uh, it's just not worth it. Well, no. Continuing to bring maimed animals into the sanctuary isn't worth it. But you've never actually given yourself totally to God. So how do you know that it doesn't profit? Because what you've done is not what God's calling you to do. So God's cutting through the fog by drawing out, making plain, even in an absurd way, a way that sounds absurd to them when they hear it, the implications of the way that his people live their lives. He's making explicit the implicit attitudes of their heart. And we need God to do that sometimes. And in fact, times of fasting are especially fertile for God to do that in our lives. To show, to say, some, to say something like, stop robbing me. Why do you hate me? What? I don't hate you. And allow him to walk us through that our actions really do point to that conclusion.
And so I, I want to bring all this and, and just say, we need to take, you know, at least a day of the fast and open ourselves up to God and just say, you know, does the way to, please help me not be a hypocrite. Please help me not say one thing, but actually do a different thing. To like mean and intend for this, but actually in my heart it's this. You know, we need to open ourselves up to God and invite him to do that work. He's not always going to send a Malachi and just make it so clear. But we need times of this. So I want to challenge you in response to this. To allow God to examine you and examine yourself. And it really does come back to how have you understood and grasped and responded to the love of God. It really flows in and out of that. That's why the book of Ephesians is really constructed around that amazing end of chapter 3. And maybe that would be good for us to close and, and read tonight. Because it all builds to that and then it all flows from that. You know, all of the instruction, all the just valuable instruction for living in the book of Ephesians happens when the people know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and they're filled with all the fullness of God. Um, so I want to read that. But as we enter into the fast... There's great material here for us to, to use, for God to use to examine our hearts. And remember, this is a kind of a word of caution. The charges that God lays, of them, lays on them are initially absurd to them or offensive. All right? So God may say something and you go, well, no, that's not, that's not me. Don't be so sure. Um, when God wants to show you something, sometimes it takes a couple a couple back and forths for you to really understand what he's saying. I'll say one more thing, but we can, we'll finish with Ephesians 3. And in fact, this, this will be our call to communion. I can't think of a better call to communion than a prayer that we'd be filled with the fullness of God and um, understand his love that can't really be understood. I mean, that's really one of the mysteries of communion. That we are filled with him. And it's his broken body and his poured out blood. That's the ultimate demonstration of his love. Uh, But one more thing is this. They were upset that it didn't seem like all the promises were coming true. But they would have if they had been faithful to the covenant. They would have been, but what they didn't understand is that God just didn't want to bless them and favor them. God wanted to bless the world through them. And he's not going to pour out blessing on a people that just wants to consume. He's not going to pour out favor on a people that's going to then just turn and think very highly of themselves and exclude other people. The whole point of him choosing people was to give them in self-sacrificial love to the world. That's really what the priesthood signified. Helping people through sacrifice and through obedience, helping people connect back into the presence of God. And he says, this is who you are. And you've fallen down. You were the person for the job, and you're doing a horrible job. (laughs) And the reason why the nations don't call me blessed is because you're not even calling me blessed. So the problems with you are really the problems. Don't, don't look at the world and say the world has problems. The world has problems because my people have problems. And my answer to the world's problems is you all. And that's the big picture of what God's doing with his people. And he says, and if you all can't, can't just worship me correctly, how are you going to help all the nations come and glorify my name? you don't know how to glorify my name. Um, so this is a call. I mean, this is a call for um, repentance, where repentance is needed, but at least deeper awareness of some of the things that might be said in our hearts. And we might not want to face up to it, but God wants to come and root those things out, show them to us. And luckily we have in Christ an example of someone who checks all of those boxes, right? And it's his life that we now live. 
Ephesians 3.14. And this is, our, this is our call to the table. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.